All right. Welcome back to the Tolle Lege podcast. I'm Joel. I'm Jacob. And we're here to help you read, study, and delight in the great books, learning how to read all things Christianly. Lately, Joel. Um, lots of work, obviously. Uh, family stuff's been busy. Church has been busy. Uh, had a little bit of a break from uh, academic work over the summer. Uh, didn't end up being able to take the seminar that I'd originally registered for, but uh, but back at it now. Uh, fall semester's just gotten underway, and so uh, got a pretty full plate there and some travel coming up. How about you? Yeah, plenty going on. We've, we've kicked off our new school year at, at Caritas Academy. So here in Arizona, we start earlier than a lot of places yeah. do. Uh, so we're into our second full week right now, having a blast uh, teaching kids about the, the Middle Ages right now. Awesome. So, uh, and then I, thank God, I have finished writing my doctoral dissertation. Woo-hoo. And so I'm waiting on my committee to finish their read through and hopefully we're setting a, a date for defense soon. That's outstanding. Yeah. We're really excited about that, brother. You were also on another podcast recently. Yeah. 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 So uh, the Bayes Institute, which yep. I am a part of, uh, has launched their podcasts. And the first episode, uh, Lucas, uh, the, the founding uh, member of Beza interviewed me and we just talked about classical Christian education in general. What is it? What does it mean to study the great books? What are the great books? Uh, things like that. And so it was a lot of fun. So that's uh, reforming classical education. You can just go on uh, Spotify or you can go on Apple or any other major podcasting network and find that. Yeah, it was a really good interview. I enjoyed listening to it. And uh, maybe we can get our producer to drop a link uh, to that episode in the, uh, in the description of this, of this episode. Uh, so we're finally back uh, after a little bit of a longer break than uh, we planned originally. We, I think we've said that each of the last several episodes, <laughs> so we probably need to stop saying that. I think that. What we just need to say to our listening audience, right, is that we plan to persist in this yes, thing. Yes, right. And right. it's just going to be kind of irregular because we're both extremely busy, yeah. but we love doing it. We're so. going to figure we're going to figure this It'll out. Uh, but yeah, we're going to continue to produce content and uh, and enjoy doing so. And uh, we appreciate all the support and encouragement that we continue to get. Mm-hmm. And uh, our, our producer, Elijah, continues to keep things active on uh, YouTube, particularly producing shorts and things like that. that and I don't think you've ever seen the same set twice. That's right. right? That's right. Well, normally we're in like a very dark, fat cave-ish kind right. of place. And now suddenly I feel like we have come into the light. I probably- I didn't see the light until I was already a master. Probably have a shining halo. You probably yeah, do need, yeah, shouldn't right wax your head before you come. Uh, what I really like though is how you can see all of your beautiful books here. And not all of them. It, but well, yeah, but yeah, but you. the ones that are here. Yeah, right. What's sad is they can't see the other wall of books where your Joyce Meyer collection is. I can't see that wall. Either. I can't see. That. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually looking at my bookcase that has books in different languages. So I. I suppose that some of them might be yeah, Joyce right. Meyer since books. Since I can't, you just read, can't read many them, of those yeah. languages, I can neither confirm nor deny <laughs> whether Joyce Meyer is a part of that collection. I can deny <laughs> that there are any Joyce Meyer books on the premises. Fair enough. Fair enough. What are we doing today? So we are going to do uh, what may what may be a few shorter episodes, although like famous last words. Whenever I say something, that I'm going to do a short. But uh, we thought that before we tackle Beowulf, which is the next major piece of literature that we want to talk about, and I know one of your all time favorites. Indeed, um, we did have some some other content that we've been talking about putting together. And we thought, you know what, maybe we'll just throw a few of those episodes in before uh, we get to Beowulf. And so we're going to talk about some of the most significant books uh, that have impacted our lives, the, the maybe the ways that they've impacted us, the reasons they impacted us, but also talk a little bit over a few episodes about how literature does shape us. Because I think it's important to say that even though we're going to we're going to identify the specific books that uh, that have profoundly impacted our our trajectory, uh, the purpose of this is not really to give the audience books that they need to go out and buy. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really just to share how literature uh, affects us and why it's important uh, to have significant books be part of your life because they, they will make a difference, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So some of the books that uh, are on my list, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you would say the same, um, in a couple of cases, at least, they're books I actually haven't read in a really long time yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, I, even if I came back to them, they might hit me completely different. Right. And I might even say, ooh, I don't even agree with some of that or, yep. you know. But nonetheless, they had a profound impact on my thinking and yes. they had a pr profound effect on just kind of my own trajectory, I right. guess, in a lot of ways. And so what I remember of them, at least, still affects me deeply, right? Yeah. And so uh, it'll be interesting to, when we get to those books to be able to kind of suss out what I mean by that even more. But. Yeah, I think that's really important because, uh, again, books, different books help you at different points in your journey. And, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to tackle a few different categories here over these few episodes. There are many other ways that we could break this down. When I think about the books that have been most... Uh, uh, most profound in my own life in terms of theology, uh, well, I would have to include several books that 20, 25 years ago made a major difference in my life. But if I were recommending books to people today, those those books wouldn't be on the list. Well, if I could make it just an analogy, that would be maybe helpful. You know, when I became a believer, I was in a charismatic Pentecostal context, which is very different from where I'm at now, right. theologically, and where sure. we worship as a, as a uh, church. But I am still thankful that in that moment in my life, I had people who taught me to love God's word. Amen. Right. Uh, and they, they were very serious about that. Right. And it profoundly shaped me. And, and some of just who I am is still affected by the culture and the people that I was a part of then. It actually even helps me in some cases to critique my current tradition. Yes. You know, where I think, actually, you guys are you're a little drier than you need to be. You, could, you yeah. can have a little joy in the Lord. You know what right. I mean? You know? yeah. And so sure. things sure. like that. No, I think that's a good point. And, and so, you know, maybe we need to distinguish this series of episodes on books that have been significant in our own lives uh, and from, for example, an, an episode where we might say, here are books that we think you need to read. Every young man needs to read these 10 books. Yeah. Uh, or here are 12 books to read as, as we watch the world burn and Western civilization <laughs> kind of reorganize itself. Right. Like those are, those are lists that I've made over the years. I've made a lot of different reading lists to, su to suggest to people, to recommend to different people. Uh, that's not these lists. These are not books that I'm recommending you go out and buy. In fact, uh, in, in our next episode, one of the books, I couldn't even tell you the title of the book, and I'll explain why when we get there, so just stay tuned. Yeah. Um, but they are books that at a point in time uh, made a huge difference in my life and in many, in many ways continue to shape my life today even if they're not books that I continue to actively reread. And of course, some of them are books that I continue to reread uh, and, and profit from. So it's not to say that all of these we've just left behind entirely, right. but it's to say that certain books, just like certain relationships, just like certain conversations, are necessary stepping stones in order to be able to read certain kinds of books. You got to read some other books first. And maybe these books, uh, as we think, about about our lives and kind of historically about how we've how we've gotten to where we are today, uh, we realize that these books played a crucial role in moving us forward. And as we start with this episode, we're going to start talking about fiction books first yeah. that yeah. impacted us. Uh, in in my case, honestly, my life of reading fiction is fairly recent. Right, right. <laughs> because I was one of those guys who only read theology, who only read philosophy and apologetics. And I thought fiction was a waste of the time up until about 10 or so years ago. Yeah. And so honestly, most of my fiction book list are ones I would say, yeah, you should totally read. You should totally get these, right? Yeah. My nonfiction list would be a little bit different kind of thing. Right. Whereas for me, I, I, I've been a voracious reader since, you know, since I was a very, very young child. And so, yeah, as I was, you know, we've, we've been preparing for this episode for several weeks. And, and as I've been thinking back, kind of trying to go back in time and say, what were the books that were most important in my life? I, I had to think back even to my childhood and say there were certain books that I read as, as a child pr prior to my teen years, right? Like pre-adolescence uh, that really put me on a path to love reading, to love truth, goodness, and beauty, uh, to, to live my life with a certain kind of uh, diligence and discipline, uh, to seek higher values. Um, and, and so I had, to, I had to think, you know, pretty far back at this point, you know, more than 30 years to identify what were those books that even even now in my mid forties, looking back, I can still say, "Wow, you know that that book that I read when I was seven, eight, nine years old 
that really that really changed the course of my life hmm. and continued to continues to impart lessons to me today, even if it's a book I haven't touched in many years. So what I'm curious to see is if we have any overlap in our yeah. list. Yeah, we I'm may sure or we may will. not, at least at some points. But um, the other thing that I'm curious, did you try to order your list so that you're going to say, like, by the time you get to the end, this is like the one that right. most affected me? Or could you, could, I had our time doing that. Yeah, yeah. so I didn't. Okay. Uh, I think what I did is I tried to organize them somewhat chronologically because uh -huh. because I was going back to such an early period in my life. Uh, really, both for fiction and for nonfiction, I tried to I tried to organize mine chronologically. So that that may be a point of difference in the way that we approach this. Uh, and again, just to emphasize the point, we're not telling everybody go out and and order these books, go out and buy these books. But think about your own life and uh, hmm. you know what were the books that really kind of pointed you. And maybe you know maybe for some people uh, it might even be something like this podcast yeah. uh, that that they start hearing about great books, they start hearing conversations about great literature, and it gets them wanting to read. Well, if, if that's the case, praise God, you know, we rejoice in that. You don't necessarily have to read the things that I have read, Jacob has read, um, but there are going to be books in your life if you're seeking good books that do similar things for you. And we'd love to hear from you, by the way, on Twitter yep. and on Substack about what, 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 what are is, your books? What, what is Twitter? What, what? Oh, uh, X. Okay. All right. Gotcha. That is the worst brand. <laughs> oh, anyway. He doesn't care. He didn't, he's already <laughs> made his money. He I was about to say, like, I mean, <laughs> who are we to question Mr. Musk's success? That's you know, right. I mean, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. And once he once he dominates in the cage match that's upcoming, you know. I, I hope so. <laughs> should I have said that? Um, maybe we should edit that out. Um, so uh, maybe one thing we need to point out before we get to the list, we're, we're each going to do five of the most significant works of fiction in yep. this episode and, and maybe go back and forth, yep. you know, one at a time. Um, it's not really relevant to this episode, but I'm going to go, go ahead and say it and we'll repeat it for the next couple of episodes that we, we mutually agreed that the Bible would not be included on any of our lists. Right. Right. Yeah. Which, uh, I, you know, wouldn't appear on a, a list of fiction for either of us anyway, because we believe it's, it's true history. Um, but, you know, Sunday school answer, what's the most important book in the history of my life? the Bible, yeah, right? Course, okay. right. And, and, and for both of us, that really is true. I mean, that is the book that we've devoted ourselves to uh, far and away more than any other work of literature. And, and Lord willing, we'll, that will always be the case, that we will always have read the Bible more, know more about the Bible, and love the Bible more than we love anything else. Um, but it's not going to be on the list. Uh, so. Yeah, the other thing I would say, so we're going to do this one on fiction. Yep. We're going to do another one on nonfiction. Right. And then we're going to do a third one on series, yeah, books, exactly. the Lord of the Rings series. So, so you might say, why in the world is that book not right. on either of their lists? Well, maybe because it's part of a series. So you got to wait and see. Yeah, there's there's no possible world in which either of us and I, I'm, I'm you're safe. I, I, I'm going to say this. I think I'm completely safe in saying this for both of us. There's no possible world in which we make a list of most significant books in the history of our lives that doesn't include the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah. Right. Amen. It's game changer. Okay. But the it's, first book in the series. Yes. Yes. It is. Um, it's not on this list because we're dealing with individual standalone works of fiction. Right. Not series. Yep. Okay. All right. All right. Well, let's, let's do it. You want to go first? No, go ahead. Okay. All right. Well, so yeah, I, I did try uh, to put this in kind of an order. I, I sort of managed it, um, but maybe not perfectly. So, the first book that I'm going to mention, this is actually a fairly recent read for me. Uh, the reason I'm mentioning this one is because uh, it, it's had a profound effect on my imagination and how to uh, think about story, portraying the gospel, kind of an allegorical kind of way, and yet not being like a really on-the-nose type of allegory. So um, let me just get to it, right? So the book that I have in mind is, is Billy Budd Sailor by Herman Melville. Mm -hmm. um, and I read this book only within the last two to three years okay. for the first time. And uh, yeah, just FYI, we're going to ruin all kinds of plot lines here. Right. So, you know, if that's horrifying to you, you might want to. <laughs> this is not exactly a recent publication. <laughs> it is not. Yeah. You're, I mean, you like me, you're just behind the curve if you haven't read it yet. Um, so this is this is a story uh, of, that takes place on a naval ship, 
it's in the time of um, upheaval with like the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And then there's just kind of been this fear that there's going to be mutiny on a lot of ships. There's been some kind of mutiny uprisals in, in, in recent history. Well, anyway, the story takes place kind of in that era, in that time. And you have a young man named Billy Bud. And Billy Bud is just, he's kind of a simple guy, but he's a good guy. He's a hard worker. And he gets himself in trouble with a particular man on the boat who doesn't like him, who actually has it out for him. Um, and the long story short, without trying to unpack absolutely everything about this book, uh, this man pulls a trick on Billy and gets him in trouble. And Billy, in, in anger, strikes the man down in the head and kills him, right? And the captain of the ship who loves Billy knows that if he doesn't handle the situation well, the entire ship is going to rise up in rebellion and it's going to basically cost the entire ship their lives by the time it's all said and done. So the captain has to make this gut-wrenching decision to execute Billy to save the ship, right? And the thing that you realize if you're paying attention is that this ship is a microcosm for the world. Billy Budd is a Christ figure who crushed the head of the serpent, but the father had to kill him in order to save the whole world. Mm -hmm. It's just this phenomenal story that just, I just did wonderful things to my imagination, mm -hmm. right? It, it inspired me to want to be able to write with that kind of power and that kind of subtlety at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, very good, very good. Uh, well, my my first one that I put on the list is a book that I read definitely pre-adolescent and reread frequently in my childhood uh, and teen years and have read probably two or three times in, in adulthood, maybe more than that. Uh, you got to understand, I grew up in a reading family, uh, but a lot of a lot of what my parents read was um, fiction. Uh, my dad read a lot of business books and self-development, which will come up uh, later in the nonfiction category, but, um, but a lot of fiction. And uh, my dad loved the Sackets uh, and really all of the Louis L'Amour books. Mm -hmm. uh, so I grew up in a Louis L'Amour household uh, where most of his works were readily accessible in my dad's library. And uh, ha had two favorites as a kid, only one of which I'm going to mention uh, here today, and that is uh, a, a novel called Riley's Luck. Uh, Riley's Luck was, uh, you know, kind of a kind of standard. Uh, Louis L'Amour was not maybe uh, the most creative storyteller, but always an entertaining one. He always had very clear good guys, very clear bad guys, very strong moral uh, heroes. Um, uh, strong women, by the way, like not at all, uh, you know, kind of the helpless damsel in distress, but always a strong woman who did need a, a strong, virtuous man to come alongside uh, and, uh, and, and deal with her enemies. And, uh, and in Riley's Luck, you have a young boy uh, who is uh, uh, growing up uh, with basically a single mom and her various lovers, uh, a mother who is really a a terrible person, uh, as, as the novel unfolds, that becomes more and more clear. Um, he is ultimately kind of rescued and adopted by an, uh, a wandering gambler, uh, who kind of takes him under his wing and teaches him what it means to be a man. And, uh, and as, as Val grows, uh, you know, that includes the ability to play cards well, the ability to use a gun, uh, the ability to stay in shape, the ability to fight with his fists or, or with any number of other weapons, uh, uh, to be a man who's strong, uh, who's capable, uh, who's quiet, who's, who's humble and yet confident in his own abilities, a man who has a very strong moral code. Um, and then ultimately, as, as Val grows up, uh, he is led into a situation where there is a woman. Uh, that he has to step in to protect uh, and save, and also uh, has to deal out vengeance uh, to some of those who had uh, uh, had had brought great pain uh, into his life and into other people's lives. I, I won't necessarily spoil the story, and again, not recommending that everybody go out and start reading Louis L'Amour, but for me, it was a very early, very clear picture of virtuous, strong manhood. Uh, and the idea that this this is what a man is supposed to be, uh, 
and is supposed to do. He's supposed to be strong, and that's not just physically. That's emotionally. That's morally. Uh, he's supposed to have a clear vision. He's supposed to be uh, quiet and competent and confident, uh, and he is supposed to deal out justice uh, in in noble and, and honorable ways. Uh, so might seem like a strange book to put on a list, uh, but for me, so many of Louis L'Amour's novels did that, communicated that, and Riley's Luck being one of my two favorites uh, would certainly stand out as one of the ones that even, even as a young child, I remember uh, at one point um, Val is practicing shuffling cards like 500 times a night. He would shuffle a deck in order to make his hands more dexterous and to give him more agility. It wasn't just for the card skills. It was developing the kind of dexterity that, that would benefit him in many different ways. And I remember as a child, getting a deck of cards and sitting on my bed before going to sleep and practicing, you know, shuffling cards uh, because I was seeing, you know, a, an example of, of uh, recognizing the skills that are going to be necessary in life and deliberately cultivating those even, even as a child. And so to some extent, that book really uh, put me on a path that continues to this day, trying to do things daily uh, that are, are helping me to be and to become uh, the man that I think God made me to be and, and calls us to be. Awesome. Okay, I've never read a Louis L'Amour book, so maybe I'll have to try one of these days. All right, so the next one, I, I got to tell a little story about. Have, okay, so you, I know you have. I don't know about our, our listening audience here, but uh, you've seen the movie uh, with Mel Gibson, Conspiracy Theory. I have. Okay. So in, in Conspiracy Theory... <laughs> Every time he sees a copy of The Catcher in the Rye, he feels compelled to buy the book. Right. Well, this, I'm not going to talk about Catcher in the Rye, but this book that I'm about to talk about, uh, I had a similar thing going on for a while, right? I, I, I wanted to read this book, and every time I saw the book, I forgot that I'd already bought a copy of it. And so by the time I actually read the book, I owned seven copies of it. And then the biggest thing that my wife likes to laugh about about the entire thing is that I ended up reading it on Kindle. <laughs> but but the book is Anna Karenina, yeah, by yeah. Tolstoy, right? Um, and this book has significantly profound effect on yeah. me. Actually, uh, it's actually a book that when I when I finished reading, it, I said to myself, "I'm not sure I'll ever read it again." And now I'm 100 percent convinced I will at some point read it again because the more it's marinated upon me, the more I've reflected on the ideas of this book and what Tolstoy did the more I'm like, you know, that's, yeah, I need to come back to that again and think through it. And so what you see in this book, um, Anna Karenina, one of the main characters, it's really not fair to say she's the main character because it really follows her life and it also follows the life uh, of another, a man named Levin. And at first, Levin is very much in, uh, well, very interested in Anna at least, right? Thinks that's maybe who, uh, oh no, that's actually not right. I got to take that back. Wow. See, I need to read the book again, right? Let me just back up and say this. So Anna is a young lady when, when the book starts. She um, seems fairly innocent to begin with, but she begins to make all the wrong choices. Mm -hmm. And she, she falls for a man named Vronsky, who is not a virtuous man. And as you watch her life unfold, you see her begin to make more and more selfish choices, right? Now, while that's going on, you do have Levin, and this is where I got confused and I apologize for it, but Levin is in love with Kitty. And he doesn't think he's going to be able to, to have her. And so he spends much of the book trying to convince himself that he doesn't need to be in love with this girl. And there's actually this really brilliant uh, part of the book where Levin, who's a, he's a landowner, he has large, large amount of land. He's got a lot of people who, who mow his fields. And by mow the fields, they mean they take scythes and they're like cutting down, you know, all this grassland with it and he goes out one day with them to mow the fields because he thinks maybe just some really good physical exertion will just help me kind of get this this pain out of my heart and my stomach you know that i'm feeling over this this woman i'm putting love with and can't have and he spends this whole day like sun up to sun down working with his his people and he's completely exhausted and he finally says to himself i think i'm okay and then as fate would have it as he steps up by the road, a carriage goes by and there's Kitty going by in the carriage and it just wrecks him. And he's like, nope, I'm just as, I'm just as bad a spot as I've ever been. Right. 
but here's the, the main point of why I think this uh, book is so amazing to me is that you watch Anna make all of the worst decisions possible. And it really is this sliding scale. When you first meet her, she's kind of neutral. I mean, she, she could go either way, right? She could, she could pick a virtuous path or a, a vicious path, right? And she time and time again makes the vicious choice, the vice-ridden choice. And in earlier decisions, they're not major things. So it is just this kind of gradual descent. Um, and then on the other hand, you have, you have Levin uh, and, and Kitty and their beautiful love story. And they're not perfect, right? But you end up by the end of the book having this beautiful marriage, right? That is, that is genuine, that is full of love, that's full of goodness. And you have Anna, who's made every possible wrong decision. And by the end of the book, she throws herself in front of a train. And the truth of the matter is, is that, uh, if, if I can say this, if she hadn't thrown herself in front of the train, everybody reading this book is ready to help her. Mm. Because she has made misery out of every single life she has touched. And so it is this most, it's a very powerful story of virtue and vice. Mm. And it's a very powerful story about how small choices add up. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I the more I've reflected on that book, and, and again, I, it bears coming back to so that I can even tell you better the story, right? right? right. But the things that, that stand out to me about it, um, yeah, they still, they still continue to impact my thinking. And one of the things specifically I'll say about that is that uh, when we talk about what is a good book, mm. we talk about what is a good book, there's a difference between good story and great writing. Yep. Now, ideally, they come together. And I would say Anna Karenina is a great example of, of good story and great writing. Um, but when we talk about a good story, we don't mean just simply the quality of the writing, the diction right. or right. the sentence structure or word choices, all that kind of stuff. Right? We, what we're talking about is, is it presenting virtue and vice in the right light? Mm -hmm. Is it showing you virtue in such a way that you long for it and vice in such a way that you abhor it and want it out of your life? Mm. And so this book is phenomenal for that purpose. Oh. It teaches you to love what is good and hate what is evil. Yeah. Uh, and so that had a profound impact on me and I would recommend it to others. I actually know somebody told me the day um, that they recommend this book for premarital counseling. Wow. And I thought that was an interesting idea. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a unique idea, yeah. but, but I could see why that would be valuable when you watch one couple make all the wrong decisions and one couple not maybe make all the right decisions, but persevere in goodness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. We both love uh, Russian authors and uh, <laughs> yeah. Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, I think. Uh, probably have figured uh, significantly in our, our reading lives. Yes. Uh, I, I, I am struck right now by the fact that I think I've been reading the classics longer than you have, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe significantly longer. And yet your, your first two entries have been pretty remarkable. And so far I've like had like a Pulp Fiction paperback Western. <laughs> And, and my second, well, my look, sec like if I reach, if I reach back to my childhood, <laughs> right, we'd be talking about goosebumps right now. Okay. And, yeah. Well, <laughs> so we don't want to do that. Let's all be. And the thankful. only quality, the only quality book I remember reading as a child is where the red fern grows. And I thought about putting it on oh, my list. My. I did. I thought because, because but I will you say didn't this because you didn't want to see me cry like a little girl. Yeah. And that's, see, that's just it. Like, so don't even talk to me about that. Like, seriously, <laughs> I named, I named my dog based on that book. Okay. Yeah. yeah ugly crying yeah. that would happen right yeah no okay. let's not even I'll go hold there. off it's a great book yeah yeah okay so my second book i i have to be honest i cannot tell you who wrote this book hmm. i have tried so many times as an adult to track this book down i think i found uh, a copy a used copy on an amazon marketplace listing one time that was about three hundred dollars i'm sure this book is still at my mom and dad's house maybe i should try and track it down there uh, but it's a book that I read repeatedly, starting in my pre-adolescence, continuing through my teen years, and the title was Privateers of 76. It was a fairly thick, green hardback with a portrait of a couple of privateers storming onto a ship, boarding a vessel at sea uh, on, the, on the cover of it. And I literally uh, broke the binding. I mean, I read the cover off of the thing. I read it so many times. Um, don't know when I started reading. I was probably seven or eight. And it was not children's literature in that sense. Uh, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, to my knowledge, a young adult novel. 
Uh, it was just an, an older novel um, telling the story of uh, privateers mm -hmm. in 1776. Okay. And there's a young boy who uh, uh, basically is drawn into uh, a sailing life, and it's, it's a description of his adventures. And at this point, there are specific scenes from the story that I could relay to you. There's some vivid stories uh, that I remember parts of the book. But honestly, I haven't read it. Literally, I, I haven't read this book in, in 25 or 30 years, uh, not at all in my adulthood. And, um, and so you might say, well, you know, why, why in the world would that be on a list of most significant works of fiction? I think partly because it was one of several books that were really my transition into reading much larger, longer, um, uh, more substantive, more historical uh, works of fiction. Uh, so I said, you know, I was a voracious reader as a child and started reading Louis L'Amour literally when I was in like, I don't know, second or third grade. Um, and, and this was a book that I came to not long after that really started catapulting me into more mature genres. And I'm not saying that this was a, a highly complex novel or anything like that. I'm sure I could give it to one of my teenagers and he would probably, you know, enjoy it. Um, but it was a big book. It was a thick book. And, and I, I think I'm safe in saying that it was by far the longest book I'd ever read at that point in my life. And, uh, and, and it was, it was an introduction into, uh, something more substantial than just a children's novel or, or something like that. And, uh, and it always stands out to me for that reason. I am, to this day, I am fascinated by sea stories. I love sailing stories. I love Moby Dick. I love the sea wolf. I, I, whether it's, it's classic novels or whether it's modern naval tales or, or sailing expedition stories, you know, uh, fiction or nonfiction. I, I just, I, I love those for whatever reason. Um, and this, this was probably the first book in that space that I had ever read and just captured my imagination. And uh, again, I don't, I don't have a copy of the book and have tried many times to, to track one down. Couldn't tell you who the author was, but nevertheless, it was a book that for me, if we're asking what's, what's one of the most significant books, that, that book was a turning point for me. It was an introduction into larger, more sophisticated, more historical types of reading. Awesome. Well, one thing that I know you know about me, and probably other people have gotten a sense from our other podcast, but I'm pretty passionate about apologetics. Um, so I, I love uh, making the Christian case, why we can know Christianity is true. Um, and and big reason for that is because uh, when I went through a pretty difficult season of doubt, you know, apologetics made a significant impact on helping me get on better ground and, and realizing that we can have a rational case for our Christian faith. Well, we're talking about fiction books, though. So I introduced that this way because um, the next book I'm going to talk about um, showed me one of the most powerful fictional cultural apologetics mm -hmm. I've ever seen in my life. And the, the interesting thing about it is that it's a book that I know tons of people have read without even realizing that it's a Christian book. And that book is Beowulf. Mm. Um, I'm not surprised you're going there today. <laughs> Beowulf is uh, a fantastic story. It's a story uh, that was written uh, around 1000 AD. There's a little bit of debate about when that was actually written, but but written in Christianized Britain. We don't know who the, the author of this uh, epic poem was, but nonetheless, um, it, it takes place... Uh, basically in kind of the, the Norse people groups, right? So you've got the, the Danes um, and you have a monster who is plaguing uh, Hrothgar's kingdom. And Hrothgar is he's a good king. He's a just king. He's good to his people. Uh, he's brought you know a certain level of justice to the land. But one day, while the kind of the, the court bard is singing about the the maker who made the world and created all these things, the praise that comes up to the maker is overheard by Grendel. And Grendel is a descendant of Cain. Mm -hmm. In fact, the, the idea here is that Cain's clan, after the murder of Abel, continued in their downward descent 
to become subhuman. So all of these ogres and monsters and trolls and so on and so forth are a product of the fallen line of Cain. So this monster has uh, been attacking Hrothgar's kingdom. He has you know, beaten all of his best warriors. I mean, he grabs them by like groups of 30 and gorges on their bodies. So boys love this book or automatically, right? Because it's just gory and awesome, you know. Um, and yet uh, a man named Beowulf, who has kind of a, a latent family connection to Hrothgar, heard, hears of this trouble that he's having and comes to offer his services. And he's already proven himself somewhat as a, a pretty incredible hero and strong man. Uh, you might say he's almost like a, a judge-like character, a Samson-like kind of character. Um, and he comes on the scene, and he he helps deliver the people from uh, Grendel, and then also some other monsters. I'll leave that out for now. Um, but the thing that's so amazing about the story to me is that as you're reading this this book, and it helps to know, again, that this is written in the time of Christianized Britain. So, so the poet, whoever he may be, clearly knows of the Christian scriptures. And he's making numerous Old Testament references directly. He refers to the flood. He refers to Cain and Abel. He refers to the Nephilim, right? You know, really interesting references that he makes. But he never refers to anything directly in the New Testament. And, you, and I, the first probably two times I read this book, I thought that's so interesting and kind of weird. I couldn't figure it out until I did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And so what you realize as this book unfolds, and, and you really pay attention, that Beowulf is the Christ figure of the story. Right. In fact, Beowulf, who, after he saves Hrothgar's kingdom, he doesn't usurp the throne like a lot of people might expect him to at that point. He, he serves faithfully, but eventually he does ascend to the throne. And when he ascends to the throne, not only does he keep the, the land free of monsters, but he brings about a peace between the peoples because there's been these like long-standing blood feuds between the peoples that go way back. And the poet kind of goes into all this, how did it get started and everything, but he brings peace to the land completely. And he reigns for many years and, he, and it gets to the point where he's this, this older King and uh, a thief comes along and goes into a dragon's lair and steals a cup. You might notice some relationship with another great story here. Um, and he raises the fury of the dragon. The dragon comes out and he begins burning down the countryside. And as he's doing that, um, Beowulf says, well, I have to go defend my people once again. And so he takes with him 11 men. And on the road to the dragon's lair, he also finds the betrayer. And as he goes to the dragon and he's ready to go fight the dragon, all his men, except for one, flee in fear and don't go with him into the dragon's den for the actual fight. And then Beowulf slays the dragon. He dies in the process, saving his people. But then the people after that, because they don't have a good, a good king, they go back to their blood feuds. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what is the Beowulf poet doing? He's telling these people that what they need is a greater Beowulf. Right. They need Christ. And so it is just this amazing work of creative cultural apologetics in the Middle Ages. Right. Teaching a people that what they need isn't just any earthly hero, any Judge Samson-like type hero. They need the king above all kings, whose reign never ends. Amen. It's amazing. It is. And now we don't have to do an episode on Beowulf. <laughs> <laughs> but we still might but we still will yeah i'm sure i'm sure no that's good that's good yeah you're bringing the substance here brother uh, I'm, I'm i'm telling you about all of the stories that captured my imagination at seven and eight <laughs> well and you're, yeah and you're I mean, picking the classics that have stood the test of time for a thousand years yeah again but i, know, I didn't start reading them until 10 years ago you know and and so some of these are pretty fresh in my heart and mind you know and i also have this wonderful benefit that i could teach these things year awesome. after year to students, yeah, right? Yeah, it's exactly. so much fun. So. Exactly. Yeah. Well, my third book um, is one that to this day I reread. Um, it, it is one that I have recommended to so many young men. Uh, it's on a short list of books that I tell every young man, you know, these are books you need to read to be a man. Hmm. Um, it is by an author whose work I love 
but I need to give some qualification and caution. Uh, Robert Heinlein, I grew up as a sci-fi fan. I love sci-fi to this day. Uh, I'm a little bit picky about the sci-fi that I like. Um, Robert Heinlein is, uh, is without question my favorite sci-fi author. And yet I can't recommend his works without reservation because he really wrote two very different types of novels. Uh, he wrote uh, what are popularly known as the juvenile series that are not necessarily connected to one another, but are stories uh, in basically the same universe that are family friendly, very appropriate for adolescents, teens uh, to read. Just wonderful stories, entertaining, uh, funny, good themes. Um, and then he also wrote some adult novels that unfortunately sometimes have some very objectionable content in them and even some raunchy material uh, to different degrees. Uh, so I, I caution people to say my admiration for appreciation of Heinlein is not without qualification. As a general rule, if you look at the copyright date, any novel that he wrote in 1970 or afterward is at least suspect. However, that rule has a couple of times failed me <laughs> where I found a novel that I'd not read by Heinlein that was pre-1970 and yet still had content in it that uh, made me decide not to finish it. So uh, I offer that qualification. But I do, I do recommend several of Heinlein's works uh, to young men. And the one that I recommend to all young men is Starship Troopers. Yeah. This is not to be confused with any film that has ever been made by that name. And, and I am not, I, I, I want to say this in the strongest possible terms. I've never seen that movie, but I know that that movie has, uh, you know, gratuitous nudity. Um, it is essentially an anti-war film. In fact, in many ways, it is a misreading, misrepresentation and mockery of the novel mm -hmm. that it purports to be based upon. And I, I just want to say, although some people might interpret Starship Troopers as itself an anti-war novel, I would say they're misreading it. Um, but regardless, that that film or that series of films, whatever it is, um, is uh, in in no way, in my mind, uh, a proper homage to the literary work from whence it gets its title. Starship Troopers is uh, is a story about the bug wars. It's about interstellar warfare and the um, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the experience of one young man, Rico, uh, who joins the space Marines and, uh, gets suited up in battle armor and, uh, and learns what war is. Mm. Um, it is a book that has had such a profound influence on my life, on my political philosophy, on my views about violence, uh, on the ideas of virtuous violence, on the necessity of violence, uh, for peace. Mm. Um, I, I just can't recommend that book highly enough to young men, not because everything in the book is true, not because everything in the book is good, not because I think this is a philosophy that you should adopt uncritically, but because I think it is a story that presents really important ideas, really important questions. Uh, and it is a story that I appeal to regularly. I still reread the book, if not every year, then every second or third year. And I have done so really for most of my life, because this is a book, again, that I started reading as a pre-adolescent and uh, continue to enjoy to this day. So Robert A. Heinlein, Starship Troopers, that's number three. Yeah, and I, I read that book because of you, and uh, I love You're that welcome. book. You're welcome. No, thank you. Truly, thank you. <laughs> um, and it's actually now on the reading list at Caritas when we discuss uh, the idea of, of courage. Interestingly enough, it is uh, my, my understanding is that Starship Troopers, as well as Ender's Game, who, who which also vied for a place on this list, uh, Orson Scott Card, um, those those books are recommended uh, by a number of military units. And if I remember correctly, two of the military academies have uh, at least one of them, if not both of them, on their required reading list yeah, for cadets. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So, all right, next one. The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Barely qualifies as fiction, by the way. That's true. <laughs> I mean, maybe this is the one you took off your list. I don't know, because you're wrestling with one. But I'm putting it on there. Uh, you know, it, it is a weird category, because it's, it's deeply theological, it's deeply philosophical, uh, and yet, of there's course. fictional it's dialogue it's and story. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... Um, but if you haven't read this 
I mean, absolutely, you do have to read this one. Like we yeah. said, we said before this episode, like, well, we're not necessarily recommending this book. We are recommending this book. 100%. Um, and the basic premise of the book is it starts off in the gray town, which you eventually learn is essentially hell. Yep. And there's a bus. And that bus is going to heaven. And anybody who wants to get on the bus is welcome. And the bus goes to heaven. And everybody who comes there is welcome to stay. If they would like to stay in heaven, they can stay there rather than go back to hell. And by the end of the book, almost every single one of them of their own will get back on the bus to go to hell. That's right. And you say, I've, I've, I've pitched this to so many people and they say, how could that be? How could that be? Well, one of the most central, I guess, theses of the book is when Lewis says that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And this has just profoundly shaped my thinking. This, this book has profoundly shaped my, my thinking kind of in a couple ways. One, it's, it's shaped my thinking about sin and our love for sin. And I since, you know, since reading, I actually read this first, and then later I read Dante's Inferno. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> right. I see what's happening here. You yeah. know what I mean? So, yeah. so Lewis is playing off similar ideas, but just this idea that, that um, man loves sin. And if you leave him just free to choose, and I, I believe there is, and to a meaningful extent, freedom to choose, but if you just leave him completely alone, free to choose, he will always choose his sin. Right. So something else has to happen. Something supernatural has to happen to break man of his love for his own sin. Right. And, and so just the way he works through that, the very fascinating conversations he sets up between different kind of types of people, right? You can kind of line them up uh, and say, Oh, I know a person that's just like that, right? Um, or so, I am this person. Or I am that person. Yeah, right. yeah or have been that person. Or sure. something, you know, by, grades, by God's grace, maybe I used to be that person. Yeah. Or something along those lines, right? Um, but he also just does some imaginative things that, you know, although I wouldn't be dogmatic right. about uh, his take on these necessarily, but his picture of heaven, you know, being more real than we are. Right. being more real than the world we come from that um you know you imagine we think of christ uh in the resurrection in the resurrected state coming into a locked room and we say oh is it because he's a ghost it's like no it's because the locked room's the ghost right right he is more real in his glory in his resurrection right than this world currently is right and so the themes he plays with like that are just phenomenal it just unlocks my imagination in so many ways and, and, and unlocks my imagination towards theology. And I want, I want to make the statement, you want to be careful. I mean, we, we don't want to jump off the deep end and follow every like rabbit trail we could come up with as, as far as uh, just ideas about things the scripture doesn't plainly or clearly state. I mean, Lewis pictures, for instance, the redeemed with a kind of double vision. Mm-hmm. At once you see them strong and glorified. And at once you see their kind of older, withered self, you know, and, and the more he looks at the more he can't decide which is really more them. And so it's this fascinating idea of the continuity of the, the body that we now have and the glorified state. There's just so many things he does that are just, they're just absolutely fascinating. Um, but I, I think I can think of no other book that does a better job of teaching us the reality of sin and its power and the reality of grace and its power. Amen. Yeah, our our mutual admiration and appreciation for that work uh, is is held uh, entirely in harmony with our robust and unapologetic uh, confession of uh, reformed yeah. categories. Right. Uh, I realize that a lot of reformed Christians don't like Lewis and think that the ideas in Great Divorce and other books are are just uh, incompatible with what they take to be a biblical theology. And I would say you're not understanding Lewis, and maybe in some cases you're not understanding Scripture because Lewis is not there advocating postmortem salvation. Right. Uh, he's he's not doing anything unorthodox. He acknowledges in the preface that uh, this is an imaginative exercise, but he's clearly, explicitly riffing on biblical themes throughout. And really, this this is a book that it wasn't on my list, but only for one reason, and that is that. Um, with one exception, the last one that I'll mention, uh, I, I, I could not in good conscience choose books that I read as an adult <laughs> as most significant because the most significant books I, I read earlier that got me there. Yeah, yeah. But, but 
by far. I mean, The Great Divorce is my favorite standalone work by Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it, you know, outside of the series that we love, uh, it, it's and, and I come back to it at least once every year, sometimes multiple times a year. I, last week, I was meeting with somebody talking about The Great Divorce who'd read it for the first time, wanted to ask questions about it. I do that fairly regularly. Yeah. Um, so it, it really has had a huge impact on both of our lives and uh, one that we would, without reservation, recommend to people uh, to read and reflect upon and then reread. Yeah. And this is, I would say too, that this is, uh, you know, in my renaissance of reading fiction, when that let, my life was changed in that way. And the last book I'm going to mention today is the one that changed it for me, by mm. the way. Uh, but this is the first book. And it's not a very long book. I mean, no. I'll make that clear. But no. nonetheless, it's the first book that I ever picked up that I could not put down until I was finished. And I literally read it cover to cover. I just, I just blocked out everything else in my day yep. until it was done, yep. you know, because yep. I, I had to, I had to turn the next page. <laughs> it's a masterpiece. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love it. I, I love everything about it. Um, all right. My, my fourth, fourth book, and I, I have really struggled with this. I like, I have gone back and forth on, on this even today. Um, but, but my fourth book I'm, I'm going to say uh, is the Count of Monte Cristo. Hmm. And uh, for years, for, for many years, I said that it was my favorite novel of all time. Now, I would not stay, say that today. That, that has certainly changed. But I think the fact that I said that for so long, I mean, well over a decade. Um, that says something, doesn't it? That says something. Uh, and, and that's why ultimately I had to put it on the list. Uh, do I think it's the greatest novel ever written? By, by not, not, not even by any means. Uh, is it my favorite novel at this point in my life? Certainly not. Uh, but I would say that that Count was probably, I think, the first kind of true classic that I read. I've, I've read a lot of other classic works, depending on what you mean by classic. But in, in the sense of the kind of book that's going to find itself on a list of the acknowledged classics, um, Count of Monte Cristo was probably the first one that I read and just absolutely was captivated by, fell in love with it. You know, it's a revenge story. Boys are going to enjoy it. It's exciting, right? Um, uh, it, it, you know, uh, it, it, it had a profound influence on me. It awakened within me a love for the classics. Uh, and it was definitely a gateway drug that I started reading classic novels you know, that I'd never read before. And um, that was how I discovered my love for Dickens, for example. I like Charles Dickens. I mean, how is he not on this list? Well, it's because it was other books that kind of led me to Dickens. And, and I'm thankful for Louis L'Amour and, and for Robert Heinlein and, and, and yeah. you know, for, for these other guys who helped get me to the point of reading the acknowledged classics and uh, Alexander Dumas was was one of those who was an important transition. And the fact that for well over a decade, I said that Count was my favorite novel of all time. I think certainly it belongs on a list of most significant books when I think about the history of my reading life. Hmm. Yeah. I haven't read that one yet. All right. Well, you're but gonna, again, you're, I, you're I, I love it when you're reading. Ginormous backlog, right? Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> love it when you're reading. All right. So. Uh, I have two Tolstoys on my list. This is my yeah, last I'm one. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised, but I know I know what your last one is. We did not share lists, by the way, uh, but I know what this book is. I, I know what it is. Yeah. yeah. And we both love it, but I read it too late in my life to be able to put it on my <laughs> list. So. Well, so this book is the book that made me repent of saying fiction is a waste of time. Yeah. Good. It's and... Good. Uh, you know, I got into so the doctoral program that, God willing, <laughs> I am about to finish. Right. <laughs> I started ten years ago. Yeah. You and I were working together That's at right. what was then CCC. That's right. right. Good old CCC. <laughs> and um, and I I wanted to do a PhD. Yeah. I had finished my master's degree, and I just I had had this goal to get a, a PhD, and so I was. I couldn't go. I couldn't go somewhere. So I was looking at what are my options to do a distance PhD program, uh, but that has, you know, solid accreditation that, you know, would be respectable. So I was open to a number of different things. And I came across Faulkner University and this, this kind of great books PhD program. And of course, I thought, oh, well, 
uh, I could I could do a lot of things with that. You know, there's all kinds of great philosophers and theologians throughout history. You know, and I thought, you know, oh, let's do it. So I signed up. Man, I applied for this program and I got in. And the first class that I took, I think the first book in the class that wow. I took was the death of Ivan Ilyich yeah. by Tolstoy. It's amazing. So the book starts off at Ivan's funeral. And there's a young man who attends this funeral, who's a part of this firm, same firm that Ivan himself used to work at. And he's an up and coming young man, right? Um, all the big prospects ahead of him, much to look forward to in life. And, you know, you just kind of, I don't know, you just kind of get a picture of this this young man that uh, you think, okay, I don't know what he has to do with the story because it suddenly it, it turns and it says, let's backtrack to when Ivan was a younger man and his story. And it, you know, it is the story of, of pursuing success, this story of pursuing always the next best thing, always up and coming, trying to get in the right circles, trying to get in the right crowd, to be respected, to be someone, to have the right house, to wear the right clothes, to have the trophy wife and dress her in all the ways that she wants to be dressed so that she can, you know, present herself in society. And, 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 and again, even how this shapes uh, his children as they grow and so on and so forth. And so Ivan is, uh, he's a shining star. He's a rocket going somewhere until one day he has an accident and he falls and he strikes his side on something and it just hurts mm -hmm. and it begins to hurt more and more and of course he brings in all the doctors that money can buy and they can't figure out how to help him and he just hurts more and more and suddenly he he's bedridden and suddenly he begins to realize that he's never going to be able to get back to work and then suddenly he realizes he's dying and he begins to reflect in a very harsh reality that everything that he's pursued in his life is meaningless. Right. His wife doesn't love him. His kids don't really love him. And the only person that actually shows him any compassion is one of his hired servants mm -hmm. who just holds his feet for him because it gives him a little bit of comfort and peace to have somebody hold his feet up for him. And I don't. I don't even know how to like. I don't know how to it's explain this experience, story. you know, it's in reading the story, story. But just to yeah. realize that this this man came to realize what really matters in life right. right before he died. Right. And so, but then you have this moment where you also realize that the young man that came to his funeral is just the next Ivan who has no idea what life is actually about. Right. And this book did something to teach me a little bit more of what life is about. And I was floored by the power of a story to communicate truth. And I mean, I mean, literally, it was a death and resurrection experience for me. Right. Because my old life was over. My new life of reading fiction and looking for great fiction that could teach me more truths, that, that didactic instruction or philosophical discourse couldn't say in that way. My new life began that day. Yeah, well said. That, that really does get to the essence of why we wanted to do these particular episodes is not to give listeners, viewers, a list of books to go out and read, although we hope that you might read a few of them. Yeah. Um, but to communicate what literature is capable of doing that I don't believe any other medium is, is capable in the same way. Now, yeah. obviously, Oratory, rhetoric can be very powerful. Film can be very powerful. Music. I'm not trying to deny the power of other types of media. But literature draws you into an experience. Mm -hmm. Fiction draws you into an experience. When you're watching a movie, you're on the edge of your seat. You're with the protagonist as he's climbing the mountain. Where you really are has dissolved. Correct. But, but when you are reading that story, you are the one climbing the mountain. Yeah. And there's a difference. Yeah, there really is. Like, um, yeah. And, and this is the power of great literature. And this is what distinguishes entertaining, yeah. 
from good, from great. Yeah. And I do believe that, you know, one of the fundamental differences between fiction and nonfiction, and, and, and it's not to say that one's better than the other. I mean, they're not at necessary. all. They're absolutely necessary. Uh, you know, scripture is preeminently the, the literature that we need, right? Um, but, but nonfiction literature, as, as creatively as it can be done, is about communicating information. And fiction is about inviting into an experience. I could just say one thing about yeah. scripture, though. Please, it's not—it's not fiction, but it is a story. But it is a story, and and that's the thing. It transcends um, any literary category that you can put it within. Right. If we were going to speak more academically, and I don't want listeners to misunderstand when I say this, scripture is truly deeply mythological. Yes. Not in the sense that it's fiction, not in the sense that it's ahistorical, but in the more Kind of literary category of mythology, it it is it transcends just its mere historicity. Um, so yeah, set scripture aside. Nonfiction literature communicates information. Fiction, great literature, great fiction invites you into an experience. Yeah. And you could have read a book that could have told you the very things that you took from the death of Ivan Ilyich. Um, we wouldn't communicate in the same way. Yeah. And yeah, there are some books that you read and you can never unread them. You can never, you can never unsee that, right? And one thing that you can know, by God's grace, your death will not be like Ivan's because you read the death of Ivan Ilyich. Yeah, amen. Yeah, we could be told, for instance, do not covet. And then we could live the life of the great Gatsby with him. Oh my. There's an important novel that I don't enjoy, but yes. I've taught it to yeah. students, and I really despise it. I understand. It. I really despise it. You despise it, it for the right. You're, yeah. you're supposed, you're to, supposed to despise it. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, last book. We said this is going to be a 45-minute episode. We're at one hour. So, yeah, I mean, of course. I knew it was going to happen. Of course. I mean, okay. <laughs> All right, my last book. Okay. This is the only book that I think I have to confess. I think I read this as an adult, but I have to be honest. I don't remember when I read it the first time. Okay. I know that for much of my adult life, I've read it every year. So for a considerable period of time, I don't, again, I don't know when I started reading it yearly either. Uh, it's not been my entire adult life. I read it at some point and then I increased my, the frequency of rereading at some point. Um, but The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan uh, is truly, I think, the Christian's odyssey. It is the, the, what the Iliad and the Odyssey was for the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world, hmm. Pilgrim's Progress is for the Christian today. It is it is our myth. Uh, it is our companion. It is the story that tells the story of our lives and our experiences that interprets the Christian life for us. Um, that's not to say that I think the Pilgrim's Progress is perfect. Uh, and, and I would say there are places where it could be profitably critiqued. Uh, even on biblical grounds, and and maybe more specifically or more frequently, where interpretations of it could be critiqued. Sure. Uh, but it is a book that uh, every time one of my kids has gone to the hospital, and um, unfortunately that's happened quite a number of times in the last eleven years, um, uh, one copy of that book always goes with me. And um, it is it is a book that I have read and reread many times, and will continue to for the rest of my life. Uh, again, I don't know exactly when it came into my life. I don't think it was as a child. I think I was probably um, a, a young adult, but uh, but it will be with me, God willing, for the rest of my life. And uh, and I think it it probably deserves that fifth place on the list of most significant books. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So this has been fun. Yeah, I yeah. It. I'm looking forward to the next couple of episodes uh, along the same line. Any final thoughts before we uh, wrap it up? Yeah, nothing, nothing super profound other than just to give you the encouragement that uh, story really can change your life. Yes. Uh, and so if, you've, if you're stubbornly holding on to bad ideas like I had, that uh, there are more important things than reading great story, you know, let it go. Let it go. Yeah. Try, try something new and you might be just shocked. <laughs> One of the things that I love about this episode and this conversation is that, you know, all of my books, with maybe the exception of the last one, came from a time in my life like before I was a teenager, yeah. before I'd gone through puberty, right? And yet they set me on a course of a reading life. But I actually love your list more. And, <laughs> and the reason is that not only are the books more substantive, 
but they are books that you started reading again 10 years or less ago. It's about 30. It's a reminder that I don't care what age you are. You might be listening to this and you're in your mid 20s, you're in your mid 30s, you're in your mid 40s, you're 70. And you say, I've never read any great books. I've, I've read, you know, trashy novels and that's all, you know. Um, start reading great literature. Yeah. And, and you don't have to read hard books. Find books that you'll love. I mean, we haven't talked about any books that are hard to read. Right. Uh, no. Books that absolutely captivated us and captured our imagination. Um, but what it speaks to is the fact that no matter where you are, you could be a child. Give your children good books to read, please. Give them something other than just goosebumps, right? Yeah. And give them good books to read. But as an adult, I don't care how old you are. I don't care where you're at. I don't care where you're coming from. This is what great literature could do. If we had an episode where we said most significant books in the last 10 years of your life, you'd have the same list. Right. I'd have a very different yeah. list, right. right? But the point is not the list. The point is the power of literature to awaken imagination, to shape vision and values, and to help direct us on the path of a life that loves and pursues truth, goodness, and beauty as revealed to us ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I would say that the, the way my imagination has been awakened by literature, by story, has helped me love Christ more. I, I, amen. Um, Absolutely. And I mean, I was, I was a solid Christian right. Right, right. when I started reading fiction, but but um, certain experiences I've had in fictional worlds have helped me love the real God. Amen. So no doubt, no doubt. It's been fun, Jacob. All Appreciate right, it. Brother. Enjoyed it. Follow us on X, on Substack, <laughs> on YouTube, on whatever other platforms or places you, you can find us. Like, share, subscribe. What else am I supposed to say? I don't know. We're really bad at this. We're really bad at this. If you are chosen, you will find us. <laughs> but until next time, take up and read. Can't hold